Residents in one homestead neighborhood are concerned over a recent infestation of frogs. Take a look at this. Those frogs have taken over. Amazing. Now those who live in the area fear that these little creatures will come inside their homes. Oh, heavens. NBC6 reporter Steve Litz is in Homestead tonight with a story you'll see only on 6. Thousands of frogs are invading a homestead community. They're stuck to the walls, on cars, on the garbage cans. It's such a problem, some people can't enjoy their neighborhood. But it's impossible to enjoy the front or your backyard. Can't even go outside, huh? No, not at all. They're all over the backyard, they're all over the grass, they climb on top of you, they jump on top of you. Jennifer Puerto is dealing with the frogs, with one crawling on her chair in the middle of our interview. The frogs began inundating this homestead neighborhood a few days ago when the heavy rain started. It's called a frog spawn, with female frogs laying hundreds, even thousands of eggs right around the same time. And it's not unusual for them to appear during the rainy season, but it sure is unusual for these folks to see them in their neighborhood. You're new to this area, is that right? Yes, I just moved four months ago. And you've been greeted by all of these frogs? Uh, yes, yeah. and the mosquito. This isn't just an outside problem. The tiny creatures are making their way inside people's homes, in their kitchens, their bathrooms, and yes, even in their bedrooms. The last few nights, the frogs have appeared around sundown, thousands covering the neighborhood, and then they go away, mostly by mid-morning. Neighbors are hoping they would stay away for good. It's a nuisance for the dog. You, you're scared that the dog might get poisoned, and, and we don't know if they bring any disease to us. And it's just nasty uh, to have them around. In Homestead, I'm Steve Litz, NBC6 News. Wow, that is a lot of frogs. Man, talk about disgusting. You get just a little bit of a taste of what it might be like to have frogs bouncing all over the place. Well, there might be some animals that you consider gross and amphibians would be in that category and frogs have to be near the top of the list. Well, what do frogs have to do with a message on Sunday morning. Well, there's a message that I've been wanting to bring to you guys for a while, and I haven't had the opportunity. We've just been going verse by verse through the Bible here in Matthew for over a year now. But since we're gonna be gone, I thought it would be a good opportunity just to record it and share it with you. It's something that I heard years ago, and it made a huge impact on me, and so I wanted to share it with you too. And it's a story about, you guessed it, frogs. Back in the Old Testament book of Exodus, we have a story that is one of the most talked about stories in all the Bible. Uh, they even made a movie about it, <laughs> Ten Commandments. All the plagues that came down on Egypt as a result of Pharaoh not letting the people go. Um, and so God is calling his people out, but there's something that has to be addressed first. Actually, there's someone who has to be addressed first, and that's Pharaoh. So turn with me. Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into your houses, and your servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. 
but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and makes frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. He said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people. And I'll let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Can you believe that? I would have been like, get them out of here now. Like yesterday, Moses, I want them gone. But that's not what he said. He said, tomorrow. Now, the Hebrew people had been slaves in Egypt for about 400 years at this point, And God was calling his people. He said, all right, it's time to go. I'm calling you out of Egypt and we're going to the promised land. But Pharaoh, he wasn't having any of it. He told Moses, he said, who is this God of yours. I don't know this God. Uh, the Egyptians served many gods. In fact, the pharaohs considered themselves gods. So it was a face-off between the God of Moses and the gods of Egypt. Like most pagan cultures, the Egyptians worshipped nature. Um, all of them did. They worshipped all kinds of creation. And so because of that, because they worshipped the creation instead of the creator, God chose to reveal himself through nature just to show Pharaoh that he was the one that was really in charge. Um, they served lots of gods. And you might, you might have seen this, though, that all of the different animals that they worshipped, um, all the different gods, they would have the head of an animal and the body of a human. And strangely enough, there was one frog god. They actually worshipped a frog god named Heket. And Heket was a, a woman. She had the body of a woman and a head of a frog. And she was the god of fertility and birth. And God was about to birth something in, Israel, in Egypt, but it wasn't something that they were hoping for. The Egyptians had a real affinity for frogs. They loved frogs. First of all, for agriculture. It was good for farming. Uh, they didn't have insecticides back then, so uh, it was good to have the frogs around. They would come up. They would eat all the flies, all the bugs. So they were good to have around for agriculture. And then secondly, they were a delicacy, much as much the same as they are in some parts of the world today. Now, I don't understand how that works, how you can worship the frogs and then eat the frogs, but that's what they were doing. And I've never actually had frog legs. I hear they taste like chicken, uh, but I don't eat much green food, so I wouldn't know. But they had a real affinity for the frogs. So if you've ever been out in the country at night when the frogs are going off, it can be almost deafening. Can you imagine an entire country filled with frogs everywhere you go? They're all croaking. They're jumping. Everywhere you step, you're crunching on a frog. Uh, frogs in your neighborhood. Imagine today, frogs in your neighborhood, frogs in your driveway, frogs in your house, in your bedroom, in your pantry, in the bathroom. Every time you take a step, there's frogs everywhere. Talk about disgusting. You know, when, when the kids were little, um, we had an opportunity to take them down to Disney World. And when we were there, we went to um, a Muppet show and they had this huge auditorium that we got to sit in and there was a screen up front. And you were watching the Muppet show basically in this auditorium that looked like it did on TV when I was a kid. And up on the screen, they had 
the scientist, I can't remember what his name is, and then his apprentice, Beaker, right? I remember Beaker. And they have all these mice and they're getting ready to do experiments with them when all of the sudden, all of the mice escape, right? They're all running. But it's not that big of a deal because you're just watching a movie basically, right? Well, unbeknownst to everybody, they had put a little rubber wire underneath everyone's seat. And so as the mice were fleeing and getting out of their cages, this little plastic wire started to flick back and forth on the back of everybody's legs. I can tell you the scream in that place was amusing. Everybody's feet were up off the floor. Everybody's feet were on their seats as everybody screamed. Now it was just one big joke, but the association was enough to cause a stir. Everybody was completely freaked out. So it was a good joke, but this was no joke. And, you know, just to, um, you know, illustrate so you guys can get a feel of what this is actually be like. Um, I've asked Jerry, uh, Jerry, or if you're ready to release a bunch of frogs there in the auditorium. That way you guys can kind of you know, go ahead, Jerry. <laughs> I actually toyed with that idea. I was going to bring some in here, but I didn't want to freak out the, the workers that were going to be in here spray painting tomorrow. So it was one big joke, but this one wasn't. Frogs really are disgusting creatures. Uh, they can live about 15 years old on average. And you'd never be able to tell how old a frog is. Uh, they have a really interesting beauty secret. See, frogs shed their skin like a lot of animals do, reptiles. And what they do is they take their back legs and they reach up and they start pulling the skin down over their head. And when they finally get it all off, it's just in a pile in front of them. And then they chow down. They actually eat the skin, which is pretty gross, pretty disgusting, but um, probably a beauty secret. You women might want to go to Ulta and see if you can find some frog skin that might keep you younger looking. Uh, another thing that's disgusting about frogs, as I was researching it, um, they discovered that when frogs get an upset stomach, right? They eat a bad fly or something like that. They will actually, when they get the urge to regurge, okay, they will not just throw up, they will actually puke up their whole stomach. They actually throw up their guts, clean it off, and then swallow it again. Gut, man, frogs are disgusting creatures. So, all right, Nathan, we get it. The frogs are gross. What's the point? Well, just this. What had once been a pleasure for them what once was something they enjoyed was now a plague upon them. It was now out of control. Something that started off rather enjoyable was now a huge problem. You know, um, it starts off, it's a perfect picture, really, of what sin does to you and me. It starts off as something pretty innocent, something that brings us pleasure. You know, no big deal. Um, something that I have a good time with. And then eventually it gets out of control. Um, but we think we can just kind of keep it to ourselves, right? I can keep it in the riverbanks, so to speak, you know, just leave me alone. Well, I had a friend once who said, basically, leave me alone. You know, I'm not hurting anyone. He said, I just want to grow old. I want to do some drugs recreationally um, and have some fun along the way. And I said, well, there's one big problem with that because uh, I don't know many old drug users, right? They usually die along the way. That's a big problem. So how did he get in that situation? Because he didn't, he didn't start off doing hard drugs, right? My guess is he started off doing something relatively 
harmless, something that was no big deal, and then it grew into something major, something that got out of control. We may say, Nathan, we're not doing drugs, so, you know, what's your point? Well, let's talk about something else that's a little more touchy. Uh, what about alcohol? See, I can do this because I'm not there. <laughs> alcohol. Now, it's not a sin to drink, but I don't think that anyone, when they first took their first drink, thought, with this drink, I am on the road to becoming one of the 15 million Americans that struggle with alcohol. Nobody said that. It was something that started off small, something that brought them pleasure, and then it got completely out of control, ruined their life, ruined families. Well, what about relationships? You know, I know they're not a believer. I know they're not a Christian, you know. Uh, he's really a good guy. He really is. And, you know, he's coming along. Um, I think with my love, I can get him there. You know, I know he looks like a frog now, but I think I can turn him into a prince, right? Something that might be enjoyable could turn into a huge problem when we're unequally yoked. Well, after a couple of days, Pharaoh went to Moses. He came to his senses and he says, look, get these frogs out of here. Take the consequences of my actions out of here. And so Moses said, sure, when do you want them gone? And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Pharaoh wanted one more night with the frogs. That's crazy. He said, I want them gone, just not yet. I want them gone on my terms, on my timetable. Now, you might say, I know things are out of control. Um, I know I've messed it up. I'm going to fix things tomorrow, just not yet. And with those things, we let sin persist in our lives. Pharaoh wanted one more night with the frogs. Pharaoh thought that he was in charge, but God was going to show him otherwise. Now, we think we're in charge of our lives, but we should take a better look because the things that we're allowing in our life aren't very good for us either. We think we're the ones in charge. Now, I know that the things that I'm looking at on my phone aren't right. I mean, you know, the things that I look at my computer, I know that that's not good. And, you know, the things that I'm watching or the places that I'm going, you know, I, I know I'm going to fix it. Just not yet. Just not yet. And you're going to do something about it. But all too often, um, tomorrow never comes and we don't deal with those things and they get out of control. The frogs keep hopping around us. In uh, The Great Divorce, this is a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Great Divorce. If you haven't read it, highly recommend it. And it's a fictional story about a group of people that go from a place that's like hell to a place that's kind of like heaven, right? And most of them don't like it very much. And one of the guys, there's a guy who gets out and starts walking around. And he starts to describe this man as having a red lizard sitting on his shoulder. And this red lizard is kind of talking into his ear and mocking him, you know? And so he's walking along and he encounters this luminous being, you know, kind of like an angel. And this angel looks at him and he says, you know, I can kill that thing. And for a moment, the guy is like elated. He's excited. He's like, wait a minute, I could be rid of this thing. I can get rid of it for good. And the angel says, if you want it gone, I can get rid of it. And his hands begin to glow with a fiery heat. And then all of a sudden, the guy realizes the severity of what's about to happen. And so he starts to backpedal. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe, maybe we don't have to kill it just yet. So like, do we have to do this right now? Maybe we don't have to be so severe. 
And the angel says, you know, in this moment are all moments. You either want that thing dead or you don't. So which is it? And he starts to kind of backpedal a little bit. And the lizard, which is kind of sensing the man's hesitation on what to do, starts to mock him and plead at the same time. This is what he says. I'm going to read it. He says, be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll only be sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are right now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. Maybe natural for him, right? But it's not natural for us. I know there are no real pleasures, okay? Only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? Listen, I'll be so good. I admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh, almost innocent. So for C.S. Lewis, these words describe the way in which that we compromise with our sin and leave it in our lives, that indwelling sin that plagues us, that just dogs us, and we don't get rid of it. It's almost innocent, right? I don't want to be legalistic. I mean, God will forgive me. You know, I want to deal with that thing, just maybe not yet. And with such words, we allow the lizard to live on and torment us. Here's the deal. The longer we persist in disobedience, the harder our hearts are going to get. Each time God sent a plague on Egypt, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Half the time it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then the other half it says that God hardened his heart. How can that be? Well, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. At that point, there was, there was really no return. God knew Pharaoh wasn't going to repent. And so then God hardened his heart. Um, he begged Moses to take the plagues away. Instead of submitting to the Lord, he wanted his own timetable. And then when it became too much, he begged Moses to take him away. Take the consequences away, Moses. But he didn't get serious about it. Not really. And in spite of all the evidence, all the evidence that was around him, the supernatural evidence, he was denying what he knew to be true. Okay. And with each defiant act brought a whole new crop of consequences and not just on him, on his people too. See, we tend to think that our sin is only going to affect us, but it doesn't. It swells and floods out of the riverbank and spills into the lives of everybody else around us. It doesn't just stay with us. It hurts our families. It hurts our church, our workplace, everywhere we go when we engage in persistent sin. Now, his repeated acts of disobedience hardened his heart. Now, in both Psalms and in the book of Hebrews, it says, Today, if you hear my voice, says the Lord, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. So when the people of Israel were in the desert, they hardened their hearts. They kept sinning against the Lord. And at one point, God said, that's enough. You guys have rebelled. You have hardened your hearts. You have stiffened your neck. And now you won't go into the promised land. You're going to have to suffer the consequences. And a whole generation had to die in the desert because they had hardened their hearts towards the Lord. Well, last week I ended the message about, uh, with a story about these Navy pilots who had taken off in World War II from the carrier in the Atlantic Ocean. And they were looking for submarines and they were supposed to be back at a specific time. But they came back late and it was nighttime. And the American ships had been notified that there was a German armada moving into the area. They were now outnumbered and they were in real danger. They couldn't risk losing the aircraft carrier. And so the commander had to give the order for all of the lights to be turned off and all the radio communication to be cut off. 
And as the pilots made their way back to where the ship should be, they couldn't find it. It was dark. And they begged and they pleaded for them to turn the radios back on. Just give us one light so that we can land. But radio communication had been turned off. And there will come a time in people's lives with repeated disobedience, repeated rejection of God's um, conviction in their lives when they harden their heart and they can no longer hear the Lord's voice. They can no longer hear the Holy Spirit's leading them to safety. And that's a dangerous place to be. See, hearts don't get hardened all at once. They happen a little bit at a time. We take one little step and one little step. And then before long, we're so far away from where we ever thought we'd be. You know, if you take a frog and you drop them in a pot of boiling water, of course, they're going to jump out right away. You've probably heard the analogy, but if you put a frog in a pot of room temperature water, it'll be fine. And then you slowly turn up the heat, okay? And because it's an amphibian, they regulate, they automatically regulate their temperature. And so it just kind of stays in there as the heat rises. And before too long, when it's too late, The frog doesn't know it, but it's slowly being cooked to death. The frog dies because he gets used to the heat. And that's the way sin is. At first, it's shocking. You know, I would never go there. I would never do that thing. I would never hang out with those people. But the more we do it, the more we get used to it. You know, "Ah, it's not that big a deal. It's not that really big a deal. Uh, It's not a problem. You know, I don't know why everybody's making such a fuss about it. And we don't see that it's slowly killing us. You know, the Bible says that there's pleasure in sin for a season. There is. But then later comes destruction. And it says the wages of sin is death. See, there's a price to pay that we're not going to be able to get away with. Eventually, the bill comes due. It's going to catch up with us eventually. Sin stinks. And sin stinks. It's sin. sin is sick. So what do we do? How do we stop playing games with God and fooling around with the frogs? Pharaoh was fooling around with the frogs and playing games with God. Well, here's a couple points to help us along the way. The first is remember. Okay, remember. I've said this before, but sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Sin's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's not bad because, you know, God says it is. It's not God saying, listen, I forbid that because I said so. You know, when we're parents, sometimes we're tempted to use that, you know, because I said so. It doesn't usually go very well. But God's saying, listen, I don't want you to do that thing. It's forbidden because it's bad for you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to kill you eventually. So something's not just bad because it's forbidden. God forbids it because it's actually going to hurt you. We have a tendency to think that just because we didn't get bit the first time, because it didn't hurt us the first time, that we're okay. Um, And we kind of persist in sin. And it reminds me of Samson. You know, Samson was raised as a Nazarite under a Nazarite vow. And that meant that he wasn't supposed to cut his hair. We know that one. He wasn't supposed to touch dead things. And he wasn't supposed to drink wine. Okay. Now, we don't know exactly if he drank wine, but we do know that he was at a wedding feast and things got pretty out of control. The next thing we know is that he goes walking by and he sees a dead animal and bees have made a hive inside this animal, this dead animal. And there's a bunch of honey in there and he's told, we're told that he scoops some of it up and eats it, touched a dead body. And then later on, we know he ended up with Delilah and she deceived him into cutting his hair. Now, here's what I think happened. 
I think that he was drinking at the wedding. And he thought, nothing happened. And then he touched the dead body. And he thought, hmm, nothing happened. Still have my strength. And then he was with Delilah and he figured, you know what? Didn't hurt me the first two times. What's the big deal? But we know what happened. He was taken down because of it. I, I read this story from January of 2018. I'm going to read it to you. A snake owner was killed by an eight-foot python that he called his baby. Daniel Brandon, 31, died from asphyxiation at his home in England. One of his pets, a female African rock python named Tiny, was found near his body out of its pen. The coroner said that there's no doubt that Mr. Brandon died as a result of contact with Tiny, and he recorded the verdict of misadventure. Mr. Brandon had kept snakes for 16 years, and Tiny was just one of 10 snakes and 12 tarantulas that this guy kept. Now, his mother said that her son had owned Tiny since he was small enough to fit in his hand. He never felt threatened by Tiny, and he was aware of how strong it was, but there were occasions when it would strike out when she came into the room. And she told the court on her night of her son's death that she heard a banging coming from his room, but it assumed that it was a dumbbell falling or that he had knocked something over. She later discovered him unconscious in his bedroom and later found the snake coiled under a cabinet. This man loved snakes, strange, but he nurtured it. He cared for it ever since it was small enough to fit in his hand. But that's just what sin does. Sin catches up with you. It's going to get you eventually. It may lay lay dormant for a while, but eventually it's going to show its ugly head. Every sin has consequences. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you sow a thought, you're going to reap an action. If you sow an action, you're going to reap a lifestyle, a habit. And then if you sow a habit, you're going to reap a lifestyle. If you sow a lifestyle, you're going to reap a destiny. So whatever we sow, that's what we're going to reap. And the dominoes are going to fall. And before too long, you're going to see what kind of crop comes up. Whenever sin is sown, it's going to produce a crop of consequences. You sow sin, consequences are going to spring up. You can't go out and sow your wild oats during the week, okay? And then pray for a crop failure on Sunday. That's not the way it works. Can't live it up on the weekends and then come to church and say, God, please don't let anything happen to me. That's not the way it works. Now, you can still be forgiven, right? You can repent. You can ask God for forgiveness. There'll be no barrier between you and the Lord, but there will be repercussions. There's nothing we can do to escape that. All right, last verse on this. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, I used to think that God was in heaven with a lightning bolt, right? Like just ready to strike me as soon as I did something wrong. But it doesn't say that God will find you out. God already knows, by the way. It says that your sin will find you out. And what that means is there's going to be consequences to continued sin, and it's going to find you out eventually. That's what that means. So remember, (laughs) sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. The next one is repent. This word in the Greek is a military term, and it means to change direction, to do a 180 and to go the other way. Now, um, all of us, if we don't turn, if we don't repent, there's not going to be forgiveness. Now, there's a big difference between people who are simply regretting things that they've done and people who are repentant of things that they are done. And you can tell if a person is regretful or remorseful or um, repentant by whether or not they change direction. If there's no change in direction, if there's no difference in their life, then they're not truly repentant. 
um, they make excuses or they try to justify their actions. You know, listen, um, I'm Irish, so I've got a bad temper. That's just the way I was made. They're trying to make excuses and justify their behavior, and they're not repentant at all. Listen, all of us have something that we wrestle with. All of us are living in a fallen state. That's the reason why we need Jesus, okay? We don't need to excuse it. We don't need to justify it. It needs to be dealt with today. It needs to be dealt with today. Um, the thirdly, the third thing we need to do, so remember, repent, and then thirdly, reckon. Romans 6.11 tells us that you must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin on our life. He broke the power of sin. And then when he rose from the dead, he broke the penalty of sin over your life. We don't have to sin. Every sin we commit, we choose to, right? But Jesus has already broken the power and the penalty of sin over our lives. We have to reckon that to be so. You know, earlier I said the wages of sin is death. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he completely erased the penalty for that. We have to believe that to be true. We have to reckon it to be so. You know, it may not feel true, but that doesn't mean that it isn't true. You just got to believe it. Believe the promises. You embrace the promises of God. He's going to enable you to be able to carry it out. We talked a few weeks ago about when Jesus went into the synagogue and he healed the man with the withered hand. That guy was sitting there with his, his arm that was all shriveled up. And Jesus said, stretch out your hand. Now, this guy could have said, listen, don't you see my hand? It doesn't work, man. Okay? I can't lift it up. But he believed in what Jesus was going to do. He had faith. And as he believed, he believed and as he stretched it out, his hand was restored. That's what it says. There is real power in obedience. And when we reckon it to be so, when we believe the promises and what Jesus can do for us, that's when things will change. Okay? Remember that. God's commandments are God's enablements. Whenever God commands us to do something, he's going to give us the ability to carry it out, to live it out in the real world. Remember that. You know, we live in a time where temptation and sin is thrown in our face all the time. You know, we carry these little devices with us, and we're only a few random clicks away from having all kinds of unholy things go in front of our eyes. You know, having the world at our fingertips may seem like a relatively new thing, but the temptations that come along with it aren't. They've been around since the beginning of time. Uh, the church in Corinth... You know, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and they were having a really big problem. If you're having problems with temptation or addictions, reading Corinthians is a really good idea because this city was placed in a very carnal culture, a very pagan place. They had all kinds of idol worship. Um, they actually had whole uh, houses of worship dedicated to these gods that included prostitution and all kinds of immorality. So that's where these people were located. And as Paul's writing to them and trying to call them out of that, these people are getting saved out of that. They're in a really difficult place. And um, if we think that it's overwhelming and feels impossible to deal with some of the things that we're running into in our day, just take a look at what Paul wrote to them back then. First Corinthians 10, 13 and 14. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. All of this is common to man. All of these temptations are common to man. The times may be different, but the temptations are the same. You know, if we're walking 
in relationship to the Lord, he's going to provide a way of escape. He's going, we're going to feel the leading of the Holy Spirit when we turn towards him. You know, what are those things that we turn to when we're stressed or when we're upset? Those are where the temptations lie. That's where the enemy's trying to trip us up. If we turn towards the Lord, he's going to provide a way of escape and he's going to, you know, build us up, you know, sustain us that we'll be able to endure it. So we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Final point here in dealing with those frogs that seem to hop all around us when we don't deal with them is refuse. We have to refuse to go back to those places where all those frogs are croaking. We have to remove ourselves from those people and those places, those situations that trip us up. Whenever I see the word flee, I think of Joseph. You know, Joseph is a great example to us, and he's one of only a couple people in the Old Testament where no sin is ever recorded. Now, that's because he's a picture, a type of Jesus in the, in the Old Testament. Now, he was a sinner just like you and I were, born with a sin nature, but it's not recorded for us. And he's a great example of how we should deal with temptation. You know, there's this story where he was given a lot of favor and a lot of authority in the house of a man named Potiphar. He was the head servant for this guy. He was so valued by Potiphar that he put him in charge of everything, his whole household. The only thing he kept from him was his wife, which is understandable. And that wasn't a problem because, you know, Joseph was a man of God. Now, there was one problem though, because Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph and she kept pursuing him, you know, relentlessly. And, you know, he had been able to stay away from her until one day she cornered him. She cornered him and she said, listen, you need to have an affair with me right now. Come to bed with me, Joseph. And he wouldn't do it. And so He knew what to do in that situation because he had already made up his mind beforehand. And that's an important point. I know I've said this before, but you need to make up your mind beforehand what you're going to do when you get in those situations. Because if you wait until temptation arrives, you're going to fall. It's going to be too hard. You need to make up your mind right now what you're going to do. And so because he knew he had to flee, he runs out of the room, but she had such a death grip on his robe that he slipped out of it and ran out of the room. Now, He got framed for that as she pinned it on him and said that he tried to force himself on her. And so he went to prison, which is bad, but he kept his integrity. And I guarantee the results of him having an affair with her would have been deadly. The consequences would have been deadly for him. So let me find my way (laughs) through my notes. Um, Listen, if we refuse to go back to those places where sin is inevitable, there's going to be a separation. It might cost us relationships, might cost us finances, might cost us jobs, all kinds of things. But if we separate us, if we separate ourselves from that sin, it's going to be better than if we continue in it. If we continue in that sin, the consequences are going to be way worse. There's death there. The wages of sin is death. So when we refuse to go to those places, be around those people, get caught up and, uh, you know, hang out in that sin, there's going to be a holy separation that takes place. And there might be some loss, but it's going to be worth it because you'll keep your integrity. If there's something in your life that needs to be dealt with, something that's coming to your mind right now, you need to deal with it today. You need to deal with it swiftly, not tomorrow. You need to deal with it today. You may think that you have it all under control. You know, you may think that, you know, you're going to deal with it soon. Uh, It's been going on a while. Nobody knows about it. I'm not hurting anyone but you need to deal with it before those frogs multiply and become a huge problem in your life and the lives of people around you. There's power in obedience, but there is a deadly danger in delay. 
right? There is freedom in obedience, restoration in obedience as that man lifted up his hand. But there's a, a deadly danger in delay. Pharaoh said, tomorrow. And you know what happened the next day? The frogs didn't go back into the river. They all died. They all croaked right where they were. And then they had a huge mess on their hands. The whole people of, of Egypt had to clean up this huge mess because of the stubbornness of Pharaoh. Can you imagine the stench, the problem, the mess that was created by him? And so all the people had to clean up all these frogs. That would have been disgusting. Frogs are gross enough. You have to gather them all up and burn them or do whatever you have to to get rid of them. So too sin in our life, when we let it persist, when it finally comes out, right? When it finally dies or croaks, it's going to create a huge mess. It's just going to be a big stinking pile that we're going to have to clean up. Not just us, but our family, our friends, our church brothers and sisters. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be terrible because sin stinks, right? Sin leaves a mess everywhere it goes. Uh, I heard this story about a man in Haiti and he wanted to sell his house. And so this family came to him and they said, we'll buy the house. But they didn't want to pay what he was asking. And so he finally negotiated and said, listen, I'll sell you the house for this much, but I want to keep one thing. I want to keep this nail above the door frame. And the people were like, okay, seems kind of strange. You want to keep the nail. So he sold him the house. And a few years later, he thought, you know what? I want to buy my house back. I want to go back. And so he approached the family and said, you know, I'd really like to buy my house back. And they said, we're not interested in selling. Too bad. And so he went and he found a dead carcass, a dead animal, and he hung it from that nail, which he still owned. And before too long, it became unbearable. The stench became unbearable. And the family couldn't take it anymore. They had to move out. And he got his house back. But that's how sin is. If you leave so much as a nail hold of sin in your life, holding on to that temptation, lingering in those places, then it's going to do you in eventually. It's going to drive you out. So remove all of those things out of your life, all of that sin that you know needs to be dealt with today. So here are our four points for today. First, remember. Remember that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's eventually going to catch up with you and eventually it's going to bite you. So remember that. And then repent. Repent. We need to change direction. We need to go the other way and we need to do it today, not tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. And then we have to reckon. We have to reckon it to be so. We have to believe the promises of God that the old man is dead to sin. Each one of us has a choice. We can choose to sin. We can choose not to sin. The reality is that the power and the penalty of sin has been broken, but the choice is ours. And as we say yes to God, he gives us the ability to walk it out, to endure it, and to walk it out here on this earth. And then the last thing is refuse. Refuse to go back to those places where we know sin is inevitable, where we know that the frogs are going to be croaking, where it's going to be a huge problem for us. It might look drastic to other people around us, whatever we do, whatever that separation looks like, however we get rid of it, it might look drastic to other people, but it's not. It's worth it. The consequences are going to be so much more severe if we persist in sin and we harden our hearts. So don't harden your hearts as the people did in the rebellion. Uh, we pray for soft hearts, hearts of flesh. It says that he will give us a new heart, 
right? That's what happens when we're born again. If we stay close to him, if we have, you walk in relationship with the Lord, our heart's going to stay tender. We're going to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit telling us, don't go there or don't do that. And so that's kind of the, the message that I wanted to share with you guys today. Uh, one more night with the frogs. Uh, don't spend one more night with the frogs. I guarantee you won't regret it. You are going to regret it if you let them hop around some more. But that's the message. Listen, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys again. Um, we miss you. We're praying for you. Um, love you guys. And I hope that was as impactful for you as it was for me. And uh, we'll see you next Sunday.